Thank you, Margaret. He is still risen, and we are still celebrating Easter, moving together in the dance of faith throughout this 50-day season of resurrection. Friends, let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. So it wouldn't change much, but I think the world would be a better place if the trail maps for national and state parks were more accurate. It would be a very small change. I realize, mostly noticed by those of us who enjoy disguising exercise as vacation, but it would be a helpful one nonetheless. I have spent too much of my life standing in the middle of the woods or on the side of a mountain squinting at a pixelated and wildly unhelpful squiggly line, wondering if I'm at this bend or past that junction or how in the world I have gone three miles in a two-mile trail. I've never gotten lost, not really. In all the parks I've hiked, the actual trails themselves have been clearly marked in one way or another so that I know the way forward. It's just that sometimes I might not be lost, but I don't have any idea where I am. And it doesn't help that the written description for most hiking trails is wildly meaningless. The maps will describe some of the details of the hike that goes through a forest, it passes two waterfalls, and then they'll rate their difficulty, whether it's easy or moderate or strenuous. But it's hard to know what that really means when easy stretches the whole distance between a paved walk and a nature loop behind the parking lot or the two-and-a-half-mile stroll through the woods, and the breadth of trails labeled strenuous is even wider. The only truly concrete information is the trail length, but even that can be deceiving. On our first visit to Sleeping Bear Dunes, that national lake shore up on the coast of Lake Michigan by Traverse City, my wife Jennifer and I hiked some of the park's classic trails. And unsurprisingly, for a park centered and named around the massive sand dunes along the coast, perhaps their most iconic trail is simply called the Dune Trail. It begins at the Dune dune Climb, this massive sand dune, right next to a parking lot that you could wander all over, climb up and slide down, and it goes all the way out to the lake shore, all the way out to Lake Michigan to offer a scenic and serene view. When we arrived that day, the dune was crowded, completely covered, mostly with children running up and down over the sand, and we climbed our own way up over that dune and started the trail. Now, the guide said the hike was strenuous, but it was just one and three-quarters mile on its way out, and it looked like a generally straight line on the map, and so we thought it couldn't be too tough. We had no idea what we were in for. The trail was more difficult than most folks had recognized, and so the crowd that was around us started to thin relatively quickly, and we realized that all the people passing us in the opposite direction, heading back to the parking lot where we came from, they had all turned around early. They decided they didn't want to make the whole trek. It was too tough for that. And it was a hot day with direct sun, and the trail was almost entirely sand, making it absolutely exhausting to walk. We went a half hour, and then for an hour, we had no idea how far we had made it, and we hadn't seen a single return hiker who had gone all the way to the lake and was now on their way back. In fact, we couldn't even see more than a few hundred feet of the trail ahead of us as it weaved in and out over and around the dunes, and we started to question everything. Was it worth it to keep going? We had such optimism at the start, had held this idea in front of us that we would make it to the picture 
perfect cold blue waters of Lake Michigan. But now, under the heat of the sun, our confidence was starting to feel a bit foolish. Doubt started to press in. The twists and turns started to feel absolutely never-ending. And we questioned just turning around ourselves. The hope that we had held so carefully at the start felt like it was evaporating under the heat of the hot sun. For all we knew, we might be striving pointlessly toward disappointment, where we would discover that what we had hoped for was just a dream, no grounding in reality. Until two figures emerged from the trail in front of us, a father and a son heading back past us on their way to the trailhead. They looked tired, but also valiant, moving with the steady confidence of a pair who had walked that path before. And we asked, and they had, in fact, made it to the lake shore. It was there, waiting for us at the end, and they said it was beautiful and worth the hike. We still had a long way to go, and we couldn't see any further down the trail than we could before, but we knew the destination was there, so we could keep hiking one step at a time. In our gospel story today, the resurrected Jesus returns to see his disciples, a tired but valiant traveler who secures the hope of those beginning to wonder how to keep up their faith. The telling comes from the Gospel of Luke, which is a shift for any of us who were here last week when we heard John's account of how Jesus met all of his disciples but one in a locked room, then he came back a week later to see Thomas. There are four Gospels in the Scriptures, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and each of the four tells the good news of the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in a slightly different way. They speak in harmony, giving us a wider breadth of understanding than we would have had with any single storyteller on their own, sometimes offering up the same stories, but with slightly different accounting on the details. And so this story, Jesus' first appearance to his disciples, is one of those instances. John tells it in a particular way, and Luke tells it similarly but differently. And so we look to Luke's gospel today. And as Luke tells it, before Margaret began reading for us, the women went to the tomb early on Easter morning and found that it was empty. Jesus wasn't there. And so they rushed to the other disciples who don't know quite what to make of that news. And then that same day, but later, two of Jesus's many disciples are traveling to a village outside of Jerusalem where they are met by a traveler who is later revealed to be Jesus himself only revealed when they sit down in the breaking of bread for a meal. And those two rush back to Jerusalem with the good news, tell the rest of the disciples while gathered in a room together. And while the two are sharing this news, Luke tells us, Jesus himself stands among them. This is where our telling of the scripture picks up today. Peace be with you, Jesus says, despite the fact there's not a bit of peace in that room. At that moment, the disciples are terrified. They're afraid. They are pretty sure that since they saw Jesus die and Jesus still should be dead, they must now be looking at a ghost. But Jesus shows them his hands and his feet. And he says to them, ghosts don't have flesh and bones like you see that I have. And their panic begins to turn to joy. But Luke tells us that they were wondering and questioning in the midst of their happiness. And who can blame them? They might have had some very big hopes about what this could mean and what might come. This is the sort of world-changing event that could change everything. 
which is a rather audacious hope to hold. The disciples knew that the world is an often terrible place. They had been witnesses to some of the violence it can hold just three days earlier, and they could not see a path from the present all the way to the pinnacles of resurrection. And they may have wondered if their hopes didn't belong in this world, if Jesus himself might have just been stepping in from the heavenly realms to give a taste of what would come at the other side of death, as if to say the world was lost, but at least we have an escape coming. That's good news of a sort, but a hope that's brittle from being left out in the sun too long, worth something, but not all that useful as we trek through a weary world longing for a more robust hope. Like Abraham and Sarah once longed for new life from a barren place, like the Israelites once cried out for freedom from slavery, like the prophets once reached for justice in the midst of oppression, we still look for resurrection that happens in this world for ourselves and for all of God's creation. Freedom from addiction and economic oppression on this side of death. Escape from unjust laws and unequal treatment here in this world. Release from sickness and suffering for the living. Deliverance from retribution. Forgiveness that we cannot earn. Reconciliations we thought impossible. Grace in abundance. Hope in our grief. Light in the darkness. Resurrection in all of the dead and dying places. We hope for a resurrection that happens here in this world where we live. Now, it's easy to see how this can happen from a distance in all of the ways that it has happened before across the whole of Scripture, all those who have gone before us. For we know that God sent Moses not to calm the Israelites in Egypt, not to tell them to put up with slavery because something good was coming on the other side of death, No, we know that God worked through Moses, worked the impossible, and had the Israelites walk out of Egypt and across the Red Sea and through the desert to the Promised Land. We know this. The disciples know this. God works these great things in the world in which we live, but still, still, when Jesus returns to the disciples, they question and they wonder in the midst of their joy. And so Jesus asks for a bit of baked fish, takes it, and eats it in front of them. The disciples didn't need any more proof that Jesus was really there. They had seen his hands and his feet. They knew he was there, and they knew it was him. But this simple act of eating a little something proved that Jesus was just as much a part of the world as they were. That he still ate like we all have to eat, was still living in a body alongside the rest of creation. It was proof that the real world mattered to God and still matters to God, that God is not just waiting for us over yonder, but God has come back for this world, into this world, for all of this and for all of us. Of course, there's a long way to go until that coming day when all shall be set right, and we can't see that far down the path. But Jesus is standing among his people snacking on a bit of fish to prove that the destination is there. We can keep going one step at a time. The epistle of 1 John takes up this theme. Dear friends, now we are God's children, the author writes and then continues, 
and it hasn't yet appeared what we will be. Christ's resurrection is set in motion. What has not yet appeared before us has secured a hope in us as we follow on a path that stretches farther than we can see. But we have all we need to journey day by day. In the gospel passage, Jesus tells his disciples that they are to be his witnesses. They are the ones to take the good news out from Jerusalem to all of the nations. And they go not just with a message, but an experience, letting their words point to what their lives have already made clear. The resurrection has come, and its transformation has already begun in the disciples of Christ. The resurrection proves God's love toward us, proves that we are children of God that God has come back into the world for. What kind of love is this, the author of the epistle asks, that we should be called God's children. And as children of God, our path is laid before us. The transformation is begun in us. We are to live in righteousness and not in sin. There's a bit of theological whiplash here. Last week, the very same epistle writer, the author of 1 John, said to us, if we claim we have never sinned, we are liars. And yet today, this author writes, any person who sins doesn't know Christ. It's a good reminder that the Bible holds itself in tension sometimes, that we must read the scriptures in the context of other scriptures, that the Bible can help interpret the Bible. And so we have not a challenge, but an opportunity to understand better how both sides of the tension can be true. And it comes with an understanding of the journey before us. We know that we are all on the path of transformation, forever striving and reaching for righteousness, growing closer to be sure, but not fully there, at least not today. And the author of 1 John knows this. We cannot say we have never sinned, and yet we must be clear that sinning is contrary to our nature as children of God. One commentator helps make this clear with an illustration. Imagine, they suggest, being in a principal's office at a school as the principal is correcting a student who has broken one rule or another. And the principal might say to the student sitting across them, across the desk, we don't do that sort of thing here. And if we, as the observer, were unnecessarily literal about it, we might step in to correct the principal and say, obviously, that is not true, for this student has just done that thing which you said is not done here. But what the principal and the epistle's author would be pointing at is that the standard we claim is there even if we do not always meet it. And so it is that sin is not a part of being children of God. But the author does not simply refute sin as the sign of our heavenly adoption to do only this would be to encourage us to see the world in terms of what we should not do. Our Christian walk is not intended to be a path of avoidance, ticking off boxes of what we should or shouldn't be doing. The author continues, even while our passage comes to an end today, the author continues to bring it around to where we might always have suspected that it was going. This is the message you have heard from the beginning, the author writes, love each other. And the author elaborates, loving each other means laying down our lives for each other, giving all that we have for one another, caring for the ones in need, loving in heart and in action. And the source 
of resurrection is love, that love which has adopted us as children, that love which is drawing the whole world to resurrection, that love that is pulling on us and working through us, showing us the steps along the way, drawing us out of sin into love. It is a long journey and a hard one in a harsh world. But we are children of God. We have the love of God in us, and this love draws us forever forward. Jesus died, but was resurrected. And he did not disappear to the heavenly realms, but returned out of a love for all of creation. I'm still here with you, he told his disciples, here to eat, here to live. And so too are we also here. We are beloved children of God. And so we know the steps, even when we do not know the whole of the way, Know that we are loved and we can love. Know that the journey is long, but our hope is secure in the one who has gone ahead of us and draws us forward in love. Thanks be to God. Amen. Friends, I invite us to continue in worship standing.